series about living in God's favor. Last week I, I started talking about this and bringing to your attention that there are many, many people, many instances in Scripture where people were living life and God chose to smile on them and show them favor. And so we looked particularly at the life of Job and this friend that came along and spoke, I think, for the Lord into Job's life and helped him see that the Lord favored him and that God's favor was accessible to Job, even though he'd lost everything, including his health. And then we shifted gears a little bit, and we looked at the life of Mary, the mother of Christ, and how when she was visited with this rather distressing or disturbing news that, oh, by the way, you're expecting a child. I know you're not married, but you're going to have a kid. That's bad enough. I mean, that's rather jolting. Uh, But on top of that, this kid is the son of God. So your parenting is going to be unlike anybody else's. And yet the angel that visited Mary with that message says to Mary, you are highly favored among people. So after those kind of experiences, when you look at Mary and you look at Job, you might say, you know, if that's what God's favor looks like, I might take a pass. I might say, you know, smile on someone else because this doesn't look really all that inviting. So we're going to move beyond those that God just showed favor or that God chose to do that. Then there's a whole list of people in Scripture who actually went, excuse me, (coughs) actually went to the Lord and asked for favor. And I wrote down about 25 of them. And I stopped there because I realized there were so many. You know, it includes Moses and Abraham and King David. It it includes King Hezekiah. It it includes people like Nehemiah that said, Lord, give us favor. And it, it, it extends into the New Testament and it extends to people like the Apostle Paul and Peter. It it extends to Stephen, who asked for the Lord to help him. And so there's this history of people who ask for the Lord to give him their favor. Now, if you think back to some of these people I've mentioned, you know, Moses and Abraham and Stephen and Paul, their lives were not always the kind of lives that you would go, now that is living in the lap of luxury. And yet God seemed to look upon them with his favor. So here's this thing. Who in the world would dare to ask the Lord's favor? Because the Lord's favor sometimes looks like it runs counter to what we would think of as living the good life. And, and then we would go even beyond that and say, who would be so bold? Who would be so incredibly um, arrogant, maybe? to go to God and say, I want you to give me access to your goodwill. I I recently read a quote, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm not quite sure where I land on this yet, but the quote was that hell is full of people who think they don't belong there, and heaven is full of people who know they don't belong there. 
And so here's the thing. There's, there's a sense that if God really would smile on me, asking, me, uh, asking him for that is really too bold. Now, we come from the Midwest, and so we live here in the center of the United States, and there are certain things about our culture here in the Midwest and on the Great Plains that I really like. There's some parts of our culture and value system I really like. One of those things is, in the Midwest, it is really bad to be rude. Just generally speaking, if you think that's not true because you drive around New Market Square on the west side of Wichita and you go, really, there are some people who think it's okay to be rude. My friends, travel a little bit. Go to places like uh, New York City and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and you'll find that this actually looks rather pleasant. And, uh, you know, so there's a sense in our culture here in the center part of the country that good manners really matter. And in that sense of good manners mattering, sometimes we have this notion that actually asking for something looks rude. And so if I were to speak up and say, hey, you know what I want? In Kansas, people would go, shh, shh, don't do that. That's rude. Just let them figure it out. And so we, we kind of have this sense that you don't ask, you don't, you don't uh, impose on people because good manners state in our part of the country that you just, you don't do that very much. And, and as you move to maybe toward the coasts, it isn't so much that they ask, they even go beyond the they demand. They don't go, um, pardon me, will you? They usually go, hey, Move. You know, there's, there's just an abruptness to it that they seem to be a little bit more comfortable with. And, and when you go overseas, sometimes you see this in, in other ways as well. But we tend to couch personal requests as something that you only keep for those who are in really close relationship to you, very close by, and, and seldom for people that are of higher standing. Well, years and years ago, I was pastoring out in western Kansas, and it was two miles from our house, from our little parsonage, to our mailbox because it was a rural r- mail route and we had to drive t- uh, two miles to go get the mail and then two miles back. And it was kind of annoying, but we put up with it. And the day came when some teenage kids, as teenage kids are wont to do, they went by late at night one night and, um, and we had a drive-by shooting of our mailboxes. Somebody used a shotgun and just destroyed four mailboxes in a row. Well, we had been kind of living with this complaint that we just do not like driving down there to get our mail for some time. And so I decided this was the perfect opportunity to make a request. So I went to the postmaster, the local postmaster. I said, we want our mailboxes moved because they got vandalized and they need to be moved right to my driveway. And the postmaster said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so I I wrote to the Postmaster General of the United States in Washington, D.C. And I said, you know, this is a great inconvenience. Nobody lives where they're at. And our mailboxes got destroyed by vandalism. And we would like them to be moved two miles. And the Postmaster General said, we established, he wrote this very nice letter back. We established the routes. And the local mail carriers weigh in on this. And it is not up to you where those mailboxes go. Sorry. 
And so some of the others, there were four of us that had mailboxes there, and some of the others said, oh, well, you tried. But, you know, I wasn't ready to give up. And at the time, many of you will remember, one of Kansas' favorite sons was a senator, Bob Dole. And I wrote a letter to Bob Dole. And I said, Senator Dole, I am one of your constituents, and here's the situation. And I spelled it out. I said, we would kindly request that these mailboxes be moved to my driveway. And I thought, you know, this is, now I'm just grasping at straws. This isn't going to happen. And, you know, I got a letter back from Senator Dole. And Senator Dole said, within two weeks, your mailboxes will be moved to the site that you've selected. I do not know how he did that. But for about a year, my neighbors loved me. (laughs) The postmaster probably did not. Good point. But you know, there's a sense that as we start doing these things, we might lose our humility and kind of put our hands on our hips and say, you know what, I think I deserve. So I just want to remind you that this isn't about walking away from humility or forgetting our humility before God, but instead, I think actually making a request leans into being humble before the Lord. And I'll get into that in a moment. We live with the sense, though, and I think this is still a part, an affectation of our culture here in the Midwest, that we are self-sufficient. We take care of ourselves. Kansas feeds the world, right? And so we don't need to ask anybody else. We can do it on ourselves, we, uh, on our own uh, merit. We don't need to be asking and telling somebody else, I can't do it. We should just stand up for ourselves and make it happen. It's that self-made, independent American pioneer spirit that probably flies in the face of what God wants when he asks us to walk humbly with him. So, who dares to ask God for his favor when we might be tempted at times to think, who needs his favor? Who really wants that in their lives? I would rather be able to get to the end of my life and sing at the top of my lungs with Paul Anka. I did it my way. Remember that song? If you don't, I'll understand. You're younger than I am. Well, Let's look at uh, Acts. Hopefully that's your Bible app telling you it's time to turn in your Bible to read along with me. Here we go. Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 47. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. So now, now Peter's talking about how the people of Israel came out of captivity in Egypt And so you remember that story, and they they came out across the Red Sea, and they carried this tabernacle that was their place of worship. It was really just a tent. They carried it with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God gave or had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors into battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked 
for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Now, you're probably going, what in the world is he going to say about this? So here's, here's the story. There's a little history lesson that's being given in the, inside this sermon that's being preached. And so the people are being reminded, you know, we Jewish people, we came out of captivity. And as we did, God instructed Moses to build this tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a place of worship, but it was also a constant reminder that God is with us. And so... Everybody could see the big tent in the camp, and that's how we knew that God was with us. And the, when they moved, they, they tore the tent down, and they moved it, and they moved it, and they moved it, until Joshua moved them into the promised land, and they came back to, to Canaan, to Palestine, and then jump forward a few generations until David, and then David, at the time of King David, he asked God, can I please build for you a temple, something permanent, something worthy of the presence of God? And some of you will remember that David asked for that, but God said, you have blood on your hands. You have, you have waged war. And so he extended that favor to David's son, Solomon. And Solomon's temple was built, and it was beautiful, and it survived for a while. And then it was destroyed, and now today, if you go to Jerusalem, there's one wall standing of that building. So David asked for the favor of actually building the temple, but God didn't give it to him. However, God gave it to his son. So when we ask God's favor, there are times, and so we're reminded in this little sermonette that there are times when we say, hey, God, I want to do this. And he goes, thanks for asking. I'm glad you asked. But no, not for you. You see, what God desires more than anything else, more than a beautiful building, more than incredible music and worship, what God desires more than anything else from you and I is he wants us to be in love with him and dependent on him and seeking him at every turn. And if our request for favor might give us the temptation to say, look what I did, he would probably withhold it. And so here, here is the Lord saying to David, you know, I'm glad you asked because I think your heart is right, but I don't think you're the right person. And there's something incredibly humbling for David to hear, you're a great guy, David, but you're not the guy to do this. Now, don't make any mistake here that David was all of a sudden removed from the equation, that he was no longer a part of the process because the things that King David did and what he was able to achieve laid the groundwork for his son Solomon to come in and build that temple and make Israel then, at that time, through King David's reign and King Solomon's reign, they were the most powerful nation in the region. So it wasn't as though David had nothing to do with this, except that the Lord said, you know, David, this piece I'm giving to your son. I'm glad you asked, but I want you to keep depending on me. I want you to run hard after me. I don't want you to sit back and go, look at what I did. I built the temple. I'm the best king you've ever had. 
I want this interdependent dynamic where at every turn, when people look to you as a king, they'll acknowledge the God who made you king. So, as we ask for God's favor, be prepared that the Lord may say, thanks for asking, but. However, there are times when we ask and the Lord smiles and says, yeah. Because there are pieces of having God's favor that please him and fit his will. So here's the thing. I think the Lord delights in giving us his favor as that dovetails with what he wants to do. So here's, here's the caution to you. Be careful when you're asking for God's favor that you're not asking for the wrong reasons. You see, it'd be easy for us to go, you know, Lord, I really want you to smile on me because winning that lottery would mean I don't have to work ever again. And that would be awesome. And I'm sure the Lord would shake his head and go, no, it wouldn't. Or, Lord, I would love you to smile on me and, and have that guy ask me out on a date because he is, I don't know what the right word is now, dreamy, suave. I'm out of pop culture enough that I'm in deep water now. But this idea that I could ask God for this, but the Lord would say, but you know what? You would end up loving him more than you love me. You would love him instead of me. You see, when we ask for God's favor, we need to make sure that we are pointed in the right direction. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But remember this, God delights to show his favor, and his favor usually has elements that are very detailed. And so he delights in the details of his favor. So here is David, who has been doing all of these things. He has been winning these battles. He has been setting up political security and peace. But God says, but you're not going to be the one to build the building. You know what I find interesting about this is I read about the life of David after that. I can't find one place where David blamed God and said, how dare you not allow me to build the building? I think David goes, oh, okay. If, if the temple gets built by somebody else, okay, I just want it to be built. And there's this incredible relaxation of living in the will of God that says, Lord, as long as it gets done, I'm just going to run hard after you. Well, I told you we'd talk about this, but in a moment. In Psalm 37, the psalmist writes, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. And so I just want to remind you about this thing on details, that there are details to your life that just please God to no end. Now, I've got to tell you, there are details to my life that I think God is entirely disinterested in. I mean... God is entirely disinterested in how many dirty dishes are sitting in our kitchen sink right now. I would like to claim that. But the Lord would delight in being there with me as I wash those dishes and make them clean and get them ready for another meal. I would just suggest to you that you might think, you know, how much money is in my bank account is of no concern to God. But I want to tell you that any, any financial distress you're experiencing is of incredible importance to the Lord. Every penny, every penny. 
You might say, you know, the Lord doesn't care that, that things that work are a little bit strained. He's got bigger things to do. I mean, he's the God of creation. He moves mountains. Why does he care about the next cubicle? And I just want to tell you that the Lord delights in every detail of our lives. And so when we ask for God's favor, he is looking at the minutiae. He's looking at the little stuff, and it shows up there. So let the details be a place of delight, not only for the Lord, but for you as well. I'm a big picture kind of guy. I tend to, to focus on big things, and sometimes the details are just not that interesting to me, to my own uh, detriment. And yet when I see God working out these details around me, I am amazed and I worship him. When I see that the Lord is able to arrange pieces that are outside of my control, I say, Lord, you are good. When I see that a surgeon says 75% and achieves 95%, I realize that's probably not just a surgeon. Those details matter to God. God who knows every cell of our being cares about that and favors us in those ways. Okay, now I want to talk to you about direction. And I want to talk to you about running in the right direction. <clears throat> you see, oftentimes we find ourselves disoriented when it comes to God. And so I want to challenge you that uh, what you should be doing with your life is facing God and moving forward. But that doesn't always happen. But that's not all bad news either. So bear with me. I think there's four ways that you can be oriented and moving. So the first way you can be oriented and moving, and if you've heard me say this before, forgive me, but I think it's important to understand, is we can be facing away from God, looking at other things, and moving away from God at the same time. So we're not paying any attention to God, and we're walking farther and farther away from Him. Facing away moving away. On the other hand, we could be facing God and moving toward him. So we're facing the right direction, we're moving the right direction, and we see God and we get closer to him. That's the most favorable orientation. In between, we may be facing away from God, but actually moving closer to him. It's possible that we could have our eyes fixed on the wrong things, but he is working and orchestrating things in our lives. He's working in those details, drawing us closer, even though we're negligent of that. In Wesleyan theology, we call this prevenient grace. We're paying no attention to God. We're not even perhaps aware that he exists. And yet he is wooing, he is calling, he is drawing. He's doing all kinds of things to get our attention. We're facing away, but somehow we orbit a little bit closer and a little bit closer the other thing that is possible, I think, is that we can actually be facing God and moving away. We can see God. We can grasp that he exists. We can say we want to be directed in his direction, but we resist the pull. We resist the tug because we say, I see God, but he scares me to death. That's not uncommon. Remember the scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Amen. So here's the thing. Sometimes we're looking at God and when we start to grasp his enormity, how huge he is, how powerful he is, how magnificent he is, sometimes we go, I don't belong there. And so I'm going to stay back here. 
We're facing God, but we're not drawing any closer. But the favored orientation, the best place, the best direction, is when we're facing God and moving toward him. Now, in your own time, just think through, where am I at? In your own mind right now, you know, do I, am, I, am I seeing God? That's, a, that's an easy question. Do I see God at work in the things around me? If not, I'm probably facing the wrong direction. And then the next question that follows that is, do I sense that I'm moving closer to him or farther away from him? So here's my challenge to you, and it's real simple. Two things, turn and move. If you don't see God, make some changes in direction in your life. If you don't recognize his work, you need to be reoriented a little bit. You need to change which way you're facing. Turn. And then the next question is, has to do with the fear of the Lord and the favor of the Lord, and that is, are you willing to move closer? Are you willing to take those steps closer? I don't want to say that lightly, because moving closer to God is always a fearful thing. It's always a fearful thing. Drawing closer to God means that there is less room in your life for the things of the world. We ask God's favor. Be prepared because if we're facing God and moving toward God, things are going to be falling away so that we are oriented on the things he is about in the world. So if we can do that, if we can be people of that fourth orientation... We can be people of God's smile. We can be the people who live in the favor of the Lord that he smiles on. And the psalmist says, the people in whom the Lord delights. I I like that. That's to me, is a great way of saying it, a poetic way of saying it. So here's some questions I want to ask you before we close. I want you to ask them of yourself, honestly. Where do you crave God's favor? Because as I ask that question, it's going to be a question that gets at the motives of what you're asking of God. Am I asking God just to make life easier for me? Am I asking God just to make it so that I get noticed in prominence or ease? Or am I asking God because I really want to see his things, his heart done in the world? Greg Pruitt wrote a book about prayer and he says that when we pray in the heart of God and in the name of God, in the name of Christ and in the will of Christ, we will see great things happen because there's nothing God wants more than to do the things he desires at the request of his people. I like that. There's nothing God wants more than to do what he desires at the request of his people. So let's ask, okay, what I'm asking God for, is this really selfish Is this self-serving or does this serve the purpose of the kingdom of God in this world? The next question I want to ask, which way are you facing? Are you facing toward God or are you trying to look away and say, I'm trying to ignore that he exists, that he's calling, that he's waving at me saying, I'm over here. And, And if you're facing the right direction, are you ready to move? Are you ready to move? Henry Blackaby said, in um, his book, Experiencing God, he said, you know, we should pay attention to where God is at work, what he's doing around us in the world. Great advice. But then the next step is this, then we should go join him there. (laughs) So where we see God at work, we should go there. 
what we tend to do, I think, in our Christian life is we say, hey, God, I found a place where I want to work over here, so I'm going to do this. It would be great if you came and blessed me here. And Blackaby says that's not the humble thing. So coming back toward humility where we started, the humble ask is, Lord, let me see you and let me join you. And then, finally, being the people of God's smile is delighting in the details of your own life. That's hard for some of us because the details of our lives right now might look really messy. They might look um, more like an open wound than a beautiful flower. And so we say, well, Lord, the details of my life, there's some of them I'd like to just pretend they're not there and hope they go away. But the Lord delights in those details. And if we ask for God's favor, we're asking for him to work in those little bitty places. And as the little bitty things come together, the large things become possible. So when you say, I want to ask for the Lord's favor in my life, I want to challenge you that God is going to go to work at the details, at those little things. I want to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing in closing. Um, but I want to extend an invitation to you because maybe as I've been speaking about some of those things, you realize that perhaps it's an issue of orientation and I'm not paying attention to God or perhaps it's a, uh, a, an issue of movement and I've just been moving away from God or perhaps it's an issue of details and I've just, there's things I just wish would, would go away but they're part of my life and God's really desiring to work there. And you just want to ask for God's favor. And Lord, I want to do the things that you want to do that turn out really beautiful, that turn ashes into something beautiful, and oil that is poured out that turns our grief and our mourning into songs of praise. If that's you and you want to do that publicly, uh, Northwest folks, you know that the front's always open for prayer, and there's people who are prepared to pray with you up here. And uh, you're welcome to seek me out individually when we get out into the foyer. If you say, Pastor, I want to pray with you, you can seek others out. Some of you know somebody you trust and love here. Uh, and, and you can go to them and say, hey, could we pray together real quick? You're welcome to do that as well. What I really don't want you to do is say, okay, I heard it, but I'm going to run away from it. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If our ushers would come forward, we will have our tithes and offerings.